Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to the Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at the Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. All right, welcome back to Fever Dreams. As always, I'm your co-host, Kelly Weil. Will Summer is out today, but we are joined by Daily Beast politics reporter, Ursula Perano. Ursula, how's it going? It's going good. It's a nice day in Washington, D.C., so I'm happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure it's pretty busy in D.C. because Donald Trump, he's been having an interesting weekend. He's, of course, been having some legal woes that I think we're going to unpack in great detail later this episode. But before we get into that, I can't let it go. He's been having some absolutely top-notch posting on Truth Social that I would hate to get swept under the rug. Ursula, did you see these posts he made yesterday about Ron DeSantis? Yes, I absolutely did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're kind of hard to miss, right? Because, listen, Ron DeSantis, presumed primary opponent of Donald Trump, they're doing a little petty kind of pre-election sniping, but... Lately, especially when he's under fire, Trump is just really, really going for it. Just yesterday, he posted something about Ron DeSantis saying that Ron will probably find out about this. And by this, he means sexual misconduct scandals sometime in the future when he's unfairly and illegally attacked by a woman or possibly a man with false accusations. And I think for all of us who are constantly refreshing Donald Trump's truth social page, you're like, whoa, because Trump deleted this. We're like, did he think he went too far for once? That sounds like actually a sober decision on social media for Donald Trump. But no, he didn't think he went too far. He actually thought he didn't go far enough. Shortly after deleting that post, Trump posts again, this time with a picture of Ron DeSantis and some pixelated, I would say, teenage looking girls or women. And he says, Ron DeSanctimonious will probably find out about sexual assault allegations because the Accuser might even be, quote, underage. So this is quite the attack vector for Trump, right? What Trump is hinting at is this long circulating rumor that Ron DeSantis may have behaved inappropriately while partying with students during the year that he was a private school teacher. And this isn't even the first time that Trump has referenced the story, right? He posted about it in February. And it's actually kind of a lingering question mark in DeSantis's resume. He did actually teach at a private school in Florida many years ago, and the Times reported that he did go to these parties with senior students. Some of them were kind of uncomfortable saying like, hey, man, what are you doing here with 18-year-olds? But it's interesting to see Trump really put that out there because I think it's a story that the press has tiptoed around a little bit. People don't want to be reckless with a kind of a sensitive subject. I mean, Ursula, 
Are there like rumors about DeSantis? What's the political climate around this very weird story about him going to parties with students? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head that it's a sensitive allegation and sort of subject matter. And I do think folks are trying to approach it from a very objective way, trying to suss out what actually happened and what Trump is trying to make it seem like happened potentially and where in between there there is truth. But I think this is just more of Trump really trying to find DeSantis's weak points. This is something that he can push on and it can raise more questions and awareness about this long-standing rumor about DeSantis that he was potentially partying with students. And if he continues to push on that, maybe people will pick it up more. Maybe more reporters will cover it. And Trump would see that as a point in his favor. It has been so interesting, though, because Trump has been so, so actively attacking DeSantis. And DeSantis is just barely starting to attack back. It seems like they're trying to play different games, at least in this early sort of Cold War, given that DeSantis hasn't launched his campaign yet, and he's assumed to. But DeSantis is only throwing a couple shots here and there, little subtweets at Trump, whereas Trump is just on Truth Social going at it. Ron DeSantis, this is becoming probably, I think, the most standout part of his early campaign messaging for 2024. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so funny because I think we forget just how hands-on Trump can be with his primary opponents, right? It's one thing for him to be saying that Joe Biden has a brain worm and Hillary Clinton's going to prison or something. But during that 2016 campaign, I mean, he was posting really nasty images of Ted Cruz's wife, implying that Ted Cruz's dad was like involved in the JFK assassination. He's I think he's still got that dog in him. And even though DeSantis hasn't declared, it could be potentially pretty nasty. Yeah, I think that This is what Trump does, and this is what worked for him in 2016, is really beating down his primary opponents, especially then when he was in a more crowded field. It'll be interesting to see how crowded it gets this time, I think, probably less than it was in 2016, so less targets for Trump. But he knows that DeSantis is the real one to beat right now, unless another candidate surges. Early polling shows them not necessarily neck and neck. Trump still tends to have the lead but shows that DeSantis is the person who folks could probably coalesce behind if it became a two-man race. And that's a threat for Trump, and he knows it, and he's trying to get out ahead of it. Mm -hmm. And of course, the reason Trump is making these jabs at Ron DeSantis is because, to your earlier point, DeSantis is kind of starting to get a little catty with him. And I think this brings us to the main news of the day of the week, really, which is Trump says he's going to get arrested. I mean, we're literally recording this on Tuesday morning. Anything could go. But on Saturday, Trump went on Truth Social, said, hey, guys, looks like I'm going to get arrested on Tuesday by the Manhattan DA. And DeSantis wasn't necessarily throwing his full support behind Trump. He was very snide in a recent press conference saying, I wouldn't know anything about paying hush money to porn stars, which is what Trump is accused of in this case. Now, Ursula, this, of course, this threatened arrest relates to allegations that the Trump campaign paid off adult film actress Stormy Daniels after she and Trump had an affair in, I think, 2006. It's funny that there is potential criminal charges coming down the line because in my mind, this is like 18 Trump scandals ago. There's just been so much. Do you remember sort of the TikTok of the Stormy Daniels case and kind of what's being accused of Trump here? Yeah, so the TikTok of it really is that Manhattan prosecutors have been investigating Trump for allegedly paying Stormy Daniels $130,000 in hush money in order for her to stay quiet about 
their supposed affair. This came to light a few years ago while Trump was still president. And I think that it's only grown from there. But you're right. It is so, so many Trump scandals ago that I think it's sort of gotten lost in the mix of things that he's been under investigation for. But this is the one that folks really feel they can pin him on. And as we see, he is openly saying he is planning to get arrested, which is just an incredible thing to post out there. But of course, he knows what he's doing, posting out that he is going to get arrested, calling for protests in his favor and retaliation to this prosecution that is coming forward. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Trump knows he can mobilize people, right? I think the scandal that people really wanted to see him go down for was, of course, January 6th, where he is definitely implicated in urging people to attack the Capitol. If there are charges coming down the line in that, haven't really seen it. There's also ongoing investigations into election meddling in Georgia. So I think it almost is a bit of a throwback to see, oh yeah, the Stormy Daniels case, of course, forgot about that one. It gets lost in some of the violent insurrectionary stuff. To your point, Trump called on his Truth Social followers to protest, to quote, take our nation back if he's arrested. And this has led to, I think, a really interesting dilemma for Trump supporters, right? Because the last time they what out in force in Donald Trump's favor? Well, they broke into the Capitol, got like five people killed, 400 people are so arrested. Not really a great look. So we're now recording again Tuesday morning. We've had a couple days for these calls for protests to simmer. And I got to say, bit of a dud, not seeing too many people taking to the streets. Maybe the biggest one was Monday night. The New York Young Republican Club said they were going to have a protest in downtown Manhattan. Well, about 10 people and 100 reporters showed up. It was a little lackluster, a little anticlimactic. Now, that's not to rule out all protests. I see that Roger Stone is promoting one tonight. It's at the parking lot of an In-N-Out in California. I've seen crazy things happen in an In-N-Out parking lot, not completely ruling out something crazy happening. But I think we're also starting to see some walk back on these protests. Laura Loomer, obviously a one-woman protest herself, famously chained herself to the doors of the Twitter headquarters because they, like, banned her or something like that. She advertised a protest outside Mar-a-Lago, but then she deleted the tweet when it seems like it was getting no pickup. And she said, everybody just come to Trump's rally next weekend in Texas instead. So I think there's a good amount of caginess. No one wants to be the only person at a protest. And frankly, no one wants to get swept up in a FBI probe or something like that. Ursula, how has Congress reacted to these claims by Trump? Because you're covering Congress every day. And this is a big announcement from someone who's really sort of the head of the Republican Party right now. Yeah. And I think immediately the feeling amongst a lot of Hill staffers and members was an immediate fear of another Jan 6. Whenever Trump says, oh, everybody go protest to take back our nation. That is so similar and so echoey to the rhetoric that happened that created Jan 6, which has left a lot of people on the Hill straight up traumatized. It was a horrific day for the nation, but especially for people who work in that building. But it does look like even some of Trump's Republican allies on the Hill are trying to ward that off, to tamp down that rhetoric. McCarthy himself discouraging protests because I think they know it can get out of hand. That being said, Capitol Hill is preparing for potential protests. There's been some reporting that Capitol Police are planning to put up some pressure gates, 
to be in position for if something were to happen. But it does sound like maybe D.C. will be a little spared in this process. Sounds like protests are building up more for whatever they might be in New York outside the courthouse or potentially a Mar-a-Lago. But on D.C., people are still on alert. Republicans, it's an awkward situation for them because they have to walk around being in line with Trump, at least the ones that want to stay in line with him, while also not wanting to be tied to another Jan 6 sort of scenario if it were to occur, or just to any protest that could potentially get out of hand if people were going to start trying to get inside the building or to create a hard day for folks on Capitol Hill. I think people don't want to be associated with that, including, I would think, quite a few MAGA Republicans who just feel like they still need to sort of appease the president by walking some sort of very difficult balanced line. Right. I mean, it's one thing for McCarthy to be releasing footage from inside the Capitol on January 6th and say, hey, look, the QAnon shaman isn't being violent in this exact moment. It's another thing to invite people back through the doors again. There are some interesting, I think, footnotes here while we sit and wait for an arrest or an indictment or maybe neither. And one standout point to me here is that Trump and all of his allies are really leaning in the anti-Semitism here. And I'll tell you what I mean. And it's that every time they bring up the district attorney who's prosecuting this, Alvin Bragg of Manhattan, they're constantly knowing that he's a, quote, Soros-funded DA. They're saying that George Soros is ordering him around and he's pulling the strings. And listen, this is a centuries-long anti-Semitic trope. You pick one wealthy Jewish guy, a Jewish philanthropist like George Soros, and say he's pulling the strings, he's the puppet master. I don't think it's especially slick, but it is something that a lot of the right is taking up. I saw Elise Stefanik just this morning making similar comments. And so I think it does speak to the conspiracy-minded outlook of a lot of the right right now, where it can't just be that, well, hey, this is how criminal prosecutions work. You pay off a porn star, you probably see the inside of a courtroom. No, it's part of a broader scheme, and they're going to incarcerate Trump before the election. And I do think it's a face-saving tactic for the right. Trump can't just be a criminal. He can't be locked up like they called for with Hillary Clinton, he's got to be the heroic main character on this crusade for the right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's an interesting line that Democrats are having to walk on this as well, and that they know that Trump could try and play this up and he can try and make himself into some sort of martyr. But at the end of the day, the administration has been very adamant that this is not a matter of politics. They are trying to go through the process. Like you said, if you pay a porn star hush money, chances are you are going to see the inside of a courtroom. They're trying to follow through on that while walking this tricky line of not trying to feed into Trump's I'm being prosecuted narrative while also making sure that they're not allowing him to be about the law. Mm -hmm. There is this running talking point on Twitter and on the right right now that says that if you arrest Trump, you just made a donation to his campaign fund, right? He's going to shoot up in the polling. I am inclined to think that that's sort of a cope, right? That's sort of overthinking it. I mean, do you think that people will rally toward Trump if he is arrested? Or to my mind, it seems like it's pretty obvious that arrested equals bad. Yeah, I'm a general believer that folks who are with Trump in 2023 are probably still going to be with him through the thick of it. But I don't think he's going to really gain a lot 
from this. I think that if you were a Republican who voted for Trump in 2016 and maybe in 2020, you're probably kind of tired of him. And we hear a lot from moderate Republicans who are looking for a different flavor of Republican in 2024. I think that if you were a Republican who's teetering on the edge of I go for Trump again in 2024, or do I want to go for somebody like Ron DeSantis or a Nikki Haley type? This just adds to those doubts. So I don't think he's going to win over anyone with this and this prosecution narrative that he will inevitably try and play up as this arrest seemingly follows through and this prosecution goes forward. But I do think there's a little bit of a chance that it rallies up his base, which has, of course, shrunk year after year within the Republican Party, but still does hold on to a strong core that has time and time again, especially last year, shown a lot of influence over primary elections. Right. Well, it's definitely a story we will keep an eye on today. I've always said that we kind of played ourselves by recording this podcast on Tuesdays. It means we're recording like when elections are on. And so we just have to kind of prognosticate what's going on, what's going to be relevant by Wednesday morning. But I'm going to call it. I don't see Trump getting arrested right this very moment. That would be great if he wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Much appreciated. Thank you, prosecutors. Well, Kelly, meanwhile, in Congress, Republicans are keeping themselves busy and they have been creating a new target for themselves. It is Mexico and they are trying to be the fear mongers and the attack hawks on Mexico. Marjorie Taylor Greene introducing some policy that she thinks can get at the core of this. I think it's creating the narrative they want. Who does not want a land war with a neighbor nation with hundreds of miles of border and extensive trade agreements with the U.S.? I know that's personally me. No. So what we're talking about here is this new Republican war cry for basically legal acts of war against Mexico. Now, we just passed the 20-year mark of the start of the Iraq war, and Congress is working on repealing the authorization for use of military force that kicked off that invasion. But meanwhile, some Republicans are eyeing their own AUMF for war with Mexican cartels. Representative Dan Crenshaw of Texas just introduced a new bill earlier this year that would provide a new authorization of use of force against these cartels, and Lindsey Graham is teasing his own version of that bill in the Senate. Now, okay, I think this is a funny little rhetorical trick, right? Because they're saying, hey, we're not going to war with Mexico. We're just going to war with their cartels. I don't think you can actually do that. I don't think you can declare war on just some certain people in Canada. We're just going to send a couple missiles over the border and we're not at war with Canada. We're only doing targeted drone strikes on them. But despite the maybe dubious legal standings of this, you're right. Marjorie Taylor Greene is on board with this. She has thrown her weight behind basically these acts of war earlier this month rallying for in Congress. And she's not even the only one. Longshot Republican presidential candidate friend of the show Vivek Ramaswamy went on News Nation this month calling for attacking Mexican cartels, quote, Osama bin Laden style, so Ulamani style. He says, this is doable. And this is something that I actually expect to do as the next president of the United States in the first six months. Now, you can ask, hey, isn't that probably illegal going and drone striking civilians in Mexico? Well, no worries, says Ramaswamy. He's says he would first ask Mexico's president to do those military strikes and quote, we can help you do this job, but if you do not, we will come in and do it for you. Now, 
we already know what Mexico is going to say about this because the president has gone on the record and said, yeah, we're absolutely not letting people drone strike our country. What are you talking about? But nevertheless, this has become a real rallying cry on the right. And I think it's something that the right is looking at to distract from ongoing woes like indictments against Trump. Ursula, how much support does this idea really have among lawmakers? Yeah, well, so I'll say off the bat, it's very unusual for a Crenshaw and a Marjorie Taylor Greene to work together in Congress. Crenshaw is usually seen as the person who's gets very tired of some of the right-wing antics of Republican members in Congress that Marjorie Taylor Greene has been known for those right-wing antics. So I think that speaks to the idea that there is some support for this idea. Where I think this idea would die is when they actually have to talk about the logistics of what it means to be at war with a cartel, which, as you mentioned, is not really how war works. You don't get to say you're at war with a faction of a country or industry, for lack of a better word, within a country. And this idea spouted by the Vivek types of the world, the Ramaswamy types. We'll just talk with the Mexican president and we'll work something out. Also not very feasible. And of course, when you start, if you were to go through this process of, okay, what if this were to pass the House? This would be an entirely different story among Senate Republicans who don't really like to touch these sort of gimmicky messaging bills that are being moved through the House. And that's what a lot of the House Republicans have been doing this term so far, is looking at messaging bills where they can virtue signal and say, oh, yeah, we're going to crack down on Mexican cartels. We're going to go to war with them. We passed the bill to do that when they know that that's not going to become policy. That's not something the Senate would likely pass. It's not something that President Biden would sign. And it just doesn't actually fit into what real foreign policy is. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's something that you can go on Fox and brag about and say that we're taking the hard line against cartels. What I love is the shifting justification for why exactly we would go to war against cartels anyway. I mean, sometimes they're saying it's drugs. Sometimes they're saying it's violence. There was a kidnapping of four Americans who went to Mexico for medical tourism. I'm now seeing that offered up as justification for this. One thing that I will flag is that this isn't the first time that the right has recently floated the idea of going to war against cartels. This was reportedly a favorite idea of Trump. He would ask his national security apparatus like, well, hey, why can't we just go drone strike a meth lab over in Mexico? And people would be like, we're looking into that, sir. We'll look into it. And now that this reporting is out, folks like former CIA director Mike Pompeo has gone back and said, well, we talked about this in the Trump administration, and I think we were wrong not to pursue it. So they're trying to legitimize it, saying the previous great leader had been on board with these strikes and that it's something that a real strong regime would do. There have been some funny takeaways here, though. Marjorie Taylor Greene and her efforts to portray the border as lawless and dangerous tweeted last week that cartels had actually left a bomb on American territory. And she tweeted a picture of a duct tape wrapped object. She said, this changes everything. Not only are cartels murdering Americans every day through drugs and crime, now they are planting bombs on our land in our country. Well, hang on, Marjorie Taylor Greene, because like two hours after that tweet, the chief of Border Patrol went on Twitter and said, yeah, we looked into it. That's not a bomb. That's sand wrapped in duct tape. So as we're reflecting, I think, as a nation on the Iraq invasion, I would like to have at least a proper fake WMD in this case. I don't want to go to war for some sand in a duct tape ball. Yeah. And I'm not one to give props to Elon Musk's Twitter at all, but there is this funny feature on Twitter now where you can put community notes. So if people think there's something important to note about a post, they can write a little note below. And if 
kind of a forum style thing. But now Marjorie Taylor Greene's post of the supposed bomb has a little note below saying CBP has said this is not a bomb. And I just love that. I think it's great that it's it's added there. Folks can see that she was corrected outright, that it's a duct tape ball of sand, which is just like so perfect that it's not even something kind of weird inside that was trying to be smuggled. It is sand. Yeah, absolutely. It's the Wikipedia citation needed. And I love that for her. One last kind of funny element of this, though, for me is that Marjorie Taylor Greene is part of this emerging Republican faction that claims to be peacemakers because they oppose further aid to Ukraine. And I think this really cuts against that messaging, right? This idea that they are the doves in a hawkish regime. Well, you can't really claim to be pro-peace when you're calling for drone strikes against Mexico. Yeah, in this faction, it's made up of some particularly far-right members within the House Republican Conference, who they have a lot of reasons. They say that we should cut back aid to Ukraine. They say it's a budget issue. They say that war isn't ours to fight. They have all of this rhetoric they use, but then they turn around and say, oh, but the Mexican cartels, we are ready to go, put the money in it, drop the drones. And I think that it's just a selective narrative that they're trying to tune of where they think that U.S. military should be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, it's one thing for the U.S. to be sending spare arms to Ukraine. It's another to say we are personally going to go to war in Mexico. No one's serving over in Ukraine. Mexican war. Yeah, you betcha. You'd be seeing people going over the Texas border. It's not good imaging, in my opinion. So, Kelly, who is our guest today? This week, we've got our very own Daily Beast reporter, Jake LaHutt, who's here to tell us about the disgusting eating habits of Ron DeSantis. Stick around for learning about how Ron eats pudding with his fingers. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fever dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers. The people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. All right. We are joined by Jake LaHutt, who is out with some really psychically upsetting reporting about Ron DeSantis's people skills. Jake, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. So in this new report you've got out with our colleague Zach Petruzzo, you suggest that everybody knows that Ron DeSantis is a little bit awkward and that event staffers have to take efforts to mitigate his people skills. Can you tell us sort of Ron DeSantis's reputation among people who have to work with him on campaigns? Sure. So there are a couple different crowds here. I mean, I think in Florida, this has definitely been known for at least since he's been on the statewide stage, going back to his days in the state capitol and then in Congress. But for people who are in states like Iowa and New Hampshire, they're just getting to know Ron DeSantis. 
And one of the big issues they're facing is they just don't really know what his campaign team wants at these kind of pre-campaign, pre-primary events, or what we call the invisible primary. I think a lot of eyes were really just turned like a hawk towards his first appearance in Iowa. And the people who tend to post these kinds of things or are involved in the planning, immediately a couple things jumped out. One is that there was a big separation between him and the voters. And the other was that it sounds like the DeSantis team is very averse to wanting to take questions from full press or that maybe they want to invite some friendly outlets. Then we got some former DeSantis staffers talking and just kind of broadened out more among GOP operatives who maybe don't have a horse in the race yet, but they really are interested in DeSantis and maybe hitching their wagon to him. And the recurring themes are basically any kind of like big stage scenario, he's fine. If he kind of has sort of a plan, the one recurring theme the staffers brought up was that he really wants to have basically a sort of scripted beginning to end plan for his events. And that's including his comments, where he's going. But if he's in a more intimate setting, like a fundraiser or a VIP room, he's not the most gregarious guy, let's say. So he's often off in the corner. He's having a hard time making small talk. He often seems pained to make small talk, which I think is the bigger issue. Like, it's not everyone who runs for president needs to be this like mega extrovert type. I think the issue is that it's very clear that he doesn't want to be talking to all these random people. And when you're in the early state of a campaign like this, even if you are a presumed frontrunner or co-frontrunner like DeSantis, he's not like... Trump, where all these voters feel like they know who he is from years on TV and being in their living rooms, like he still has to do a lot of the conventional introductory stuff in these early states. So the people who organize the events are trying to anticipate that. And some of them who spoke to me said they're totally ready to ban the press if the DeSantis team wants to do that. But one thing they can't really prevent is members of the public or your local GOP bigwigs wanting to ask him a pointed question. And I think that there's a lot of concern that He's still untested coming out of Tallahassee. And when he finally gets into the deep end here, no one really knows how well he might be able to handle those unscripted interactions. He's just an introvert, man. He needs his alone time. He needs time to decompress and to take time to really prioritize himself. No, but Dick, I think one of the standout lines in the story. The thing that was going viral on Twitter had to do with Ron DeSantis's food habit. Listen, I'm not one to knock anyone for how they choose to eat, but there's some just oddball stuff going on here. Can you tell us about what people told you about how Ron DeSantis dines? Sure. So, of course, I forgot to mention the pudding incident that people <laughs> seemed to be talking about last week, which was just one of these examples we had in the story, but to start on the pudding one, so this is a flight from Tallahassee to D.C. in March 2019. So just relatively new in the governor's office, and we're talking about like a tight cabin, just a handful of staffers present. There are no spoons, as far as we understand, from, again, this was a thing that started to become kind of widely talked about privately after it happened, because... In the no-spoon circumstance, DeSantis decides to take three fingers and basically just do this kind of like shoveling motion thing to eat the pudding. And I'd never heard of anyone eating pudding with their fingers before. Uh, To be clear, though, I also had not heard of a backup plan that a lot of people brought up, which is simply using the top foil peel thing and kind of like forging that into a spoon type object. Absolutely. I've got a toddler. You hold that pudding cup upside down and you squeeze it out anyway. (laughs) That's a much better method. (laughs) One of the things we heard from a bunch of these former DeSantis staffers is that food can be a way to draw him out of his shell a little bit in meeting situations. So whether that's meeting new people or maybe he's just kind of hit his limit of small talk for the day. They thought that if there'd be bagels or some sort of kind of interesting lunch, that would kind of give him that little boost he might need. 
or if they wanted a favorable impression on someone, maybe that would do it. But instead, if he was just kind of like really tuned out, he would focus only on the food. And we heard <laughs> several examples of just chocolate being one of the messier items, whether that's Hershey Kisses or just kind of like sort of hand candy like that. And I think this is something that, for example, the Orlando Sentinel had a story about how people in state politics of Florida have known for a while that DeSantis has had these awkward manuscripts. But I think that now that the pudding one came out and the just general theme of him really belaboring through small talk and sometimes just shutting it off and only focusing on the food in front of him, it's not the most flattering first impression to make on some people they really need to make a good one on for this campaign. I love the idea of like luring him to the debate stage with a breadcrumb trail, like maybe little bagel bites and he gets up to the podium. <laughs> I did want to ask, though, because it seems like so many politicians we encounter actually do have a weird food quirk. You were talking about him eating pudding with his hands out of necessity because it was a plane and there was no spoon. I remember Amy Klobuchar ate a salad with someone's hair comb because they were also on a plane. And Trump, of course, eats like ketchup and well-done steak for every third meal. So I was wondering how much of a liability it is to have this fussy little eating habit. It's a funny question because I definitely think, especially in the weird way we pick presidents in America, we have stuff like the Iowa State fair and all these examples where we just as a public expect politicians to eat food awkwardly in front of a bunch of people. <laughs> but I think that in this newer era of campaigning we're in, people kind of want to see authenticity or see people kind of lean into their quirks a little bit and not try to have it be such a stage managed kind of production. So I'm very interested to see how DeSantis will approach the more common food circuit items or corn dogs at state fairs or you gotta eat some fried dough at a local county GOP picnic or something like that. Like there are definitely, there are very few foods that are served at these events, especially in the summer that are not messy or awkward to eat. And just something you gotta embrace as president. I think maybe the best example of this, although there's no evidence helped him with any votes, but when John Kasich was campaigning in New York during the 2016 campaign, and he was just housing pizza and all sorts of street food. I mean, not taking like a bite or two and setting it off to a stacker, but like really committing to <laughs> exploring the cultural diversity of New York. So I think we're not there yet. That'll be more in the summer months, but it could definitely be an issue when everyone has their phones out and you have all the embeds of the cameras running all the time. It can get out of hand pretty fast. Jake, logistically, this campaign just sounds really frustrating to work with. What are some of the challenges that event hosts have been facing as DeSantis gets out there in the world? So the first one, Ursula, is just good old-fashioned ghosting. They are really, really frustrated that no one on the DeSantis team will go beyond maybe an email or two with them about the primary events. They find them to just be generally non-responsive secretive and occasionally a little bit rude or passive aggressive. So part of it too is I don't think in places like Iowa and New Hampshire, they don't yet have a kind of, whether that's a seasoned local politician or some other kind of elder statesperson figure who sort of is your go-to person to find out what the DeSantis team is all about. It's really just his political operation based around Tallahassee and some people who are based in D.C. at the moment. So I think there are people who will eventually get in the swing of like how to deal with them. And a lot of these venues that host tons of candidates from both parties in primary years, like they're pretty flexible and they're not surprised by much. But a couple of them have, interestingly enough, compared the DeSantis team to Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign in just how rigid they are and how it seems like the main focus is to minimize interactions with the public and the press. And I think that the Hillary example, especially for our Republican primary, is really not a flattering one to have out there this early on. 
Jake, it sounds like DeSantis, as he's been getting out there, has been super scripted. He's uncomfortable with small talk. He's uncomfortable with these sort of off-the-cuff comments. How would that position him in a primary against Trump, who is, of course, notoriously off the cuff? I mean, one of the biggest attractions, the enduring attractions of the Trump rally, I think, for Republicans who may not even be like a diehard MAGA person, is that unpredictability of what Trump will say on any given day. I definitely think in the Internet attention economy, so to speak, we're in a different place with Trump. I mean, his account is back on Twitter, but the peak Trump tweet era and that kind of thing, I think, has it's not totally gone, but we're in a different place with that. And DeSantis is the very, very opposite end of the spectrum. I think you saw a great example of it in his response to the Trump Stormy Daniels case, where he really tried to just focus on a kind of two-pronged thing, where on the one hand, he's going after the Manhattan DA as Soros-backed, yada, yada, yada. And on the other, he's making sure to repeat the terms hush money and porn star as many times as humanly possible in the answer. And that definitely rankled a lot of Trump people, but that's just very quintessential DeSantis, I think, in... There is a plan for when he might expect a question from the Florida press corps and how to use it to his advantage. An example where we saw him falter with this was what was ostensibly a softball interview with one of the Rupert Murdoch-owned papers in the UK. And the reporter asked him what he would do differently in Ukraine than President Biden. And DeSantis was basically like, can we move on to another question? That's not going to fly when you have your group of maybe at the most a couple hundred voters in a town hall or a gym or something they want their questions answered, and they're going to be asking stuff that is not in the usual queue of Fox News culture war related questions he might get in the bulk of his media appearances. So I really think that a lot of the DeSantis focus is on the press, and they love going after the press. Christina Pushaw, his political spokeswoman, has this whole philosophy about how if you just Basically, you delegitimize the mainstream media by not taking any of their questions and not playing ball with them. But then you also see them going after reporters online all the time, and they kind of try to have that both ways. But for all this focus they have on the press, I think the real issue that the early state Republican operatives are worried about is just the voters. Like You just don't want to have a really, really bad interaction or, God forbid, a hostile interaction with a voter. I mean, think back to Joe Biden's 88 campaign, which, interestingly enough, the guy who he got into a big tussle with in New Hampshire and said he had a higher IQ than him, ended up being a Biden supporter when he ran for president in 2020. But that was pre-internet. And that was that became this just flashpoint in the campaign that Biden had a very hard time coming back from. And there's just really no way you can totally limit that in these early states unless you just don't do the events. And the one person who's been able to circumvent that is Trump because he has the rally format. And he was able to pretty much do the same rally routine everywhere he went in Iowa and New Hampshire the last time. Didn't win Iowa, did manage to win New Hampshire. But again, like I said earlier, that's because he just has a whole different level of familiarity and celebrity with the American public than DeSantis has. Yet they're going into this race kind of more with that Hillary Clinton approach of like, it's really buttoned up, minimal access from the press, minimal interruptions to the public. Let's just do what we came here to do and have the show go off as scripted. So Trump is polling pretty consistently ahead of Ron DeSantis. And what I'm wondering now is who is the DeSantis voter? Who is the person who's sticking with him right now before Trump, who I think is the presumed nominee? That's a great question, because I think it depends on who you talk to. A lot of pollsters will say that the 30-something, 40-something percent DeSantis might get in some of these national polls, or there have been a couple ones in New Hampshire where Trump is on a solid like 20 or 30 points. So in that gap, and then people who are indicating they'll vote for DeSantis now, let's say that's about like a third of the voters in these samples. I think the bulk of that support is quite soft, and there isn't a defined DeSantis voter yet beyond these are almost kind of like 
the people who became Joe Biden voters in the Democratic primary, where they're more concerned about electability, they kind of are taking a more pragmatic approach, and they really have an eye tuned almost exclusively to the general election, which is clearly not what Trump was offering you in this primary. And I think that support that's behind DeSantis right now could easily split or consolidate behind someone else or multiple other candidates, depending on how he goes here. But for now, he's the highest profile and best known Trump alternative that these folks have. I think when you look at the crosstabs of some of the early state polling, it is notable that aside from people like Mike Pence or maybe Nikki Haley, most of the other candidates who are lucky enough to be included in these have very, very low name ID with the Republican electorate at this point. So right now, yes, to say this trailing Trump is a problem they'll want to address, but I think more fundamentally, they need to start really cultivating what that DeSantis voter looks like beyond someone who's worried about electability. Now, obviously, today, Tuesday is a rough day for Trump. He's talking about getting arrested. Haven't seen it yet, but it's definitely something that's swirling out there for him. Has the DeSantis team indicated that they're going to take advantage of this? I mean, you mentioned that DeSantis referenced it in a press conference. How does it look like they're going to handle a possible Trump indictment? It looks like the strategy, for the most part, is just let Trump keep self-immolating and don't get in the way of that. He was asked to follow up at that press conference if he would do anything under Florida extradition law or something to try to basically it's a form of appealing. And he said, no, we don't want any part of that. And a line that really, really irked a lot of the MAGA folks was that DeSantis says he has real problems to deal with or something to that effect, implying that the indictment of a former president and definitely in the eyes of the MAGA base, I mean, this is like the political persecution of a lifetime for them. For him to dismiss that as trivial, I think, really did not sit well. And that's the dance he's stuck having to do is he has to, on the one hand, present himself as a Trump alternative and a viable one at that in the general election against Joe Biden or whoever would end up there for the Democrats. But on the other, the Trump base has reshaped the Republican Party so much that he can't afford to alienate any or if he's going to alienate that it has to be a very, very small portion or suddenly the math begins to get difficult for him here. So the indictment poses a real issue because a candidate like Mike Pence, he has a more refined message to work with here where his team basically says, look, this isn't the right case to bring against Trump for the first time a former president would be charged with a crime. Let's focus on the January 6th stuff, the democracy related stuff, the election lies. DeSantis is really left in a much tighter bind because he has to sort of signal opposition to the Manhattan DA, maybe throw a little red meat to the base, which is why I think you saw the Soros mention and stuff in there. But I think that the the flip side of that, by trying to just mention hush money to a port star, I wouldn't know anything about that. That seemed to just rile up the Trump people more. And I don't really know what that comment accomplished on the trying to be the Trump alternative front, if you know what I mean. It's very similar to when he tried to do a more subtle dig at Trump after the midterms with the kind of look at the scoreboard comments he did. It's not really like a burn. And they're just very opposite styles with Trump going completely scorched earth. You saw on Truth Social yesterday where he deleted post after Sanis only to post another one that was even more crazy, basically accusing Sanis of hanging out with underage girls at when he was teaching high school in Georgia. And it got really ugly really fast, where for the DeSantis team, it's like a planned sort of precision little nip and tuck kind of attack. And I think it's just too early to see which one of those approaches is better suited for the Republican Party now. But clearly, he's not willing to go tit for tat with Trump in terms of the intensity of the rhetoric or anything like that. Jake, on that note, I mean, Trump is clearly willing to go balls out here on Ron DeSantis post whatever on Truth Social that even as journalists, I think we feel like we're maybe flirted with defamation in that case. Has the DeSantis team given any indication that they have a strategy for dealing with that kind of attack from someone in their own party? It's weird because... 
they're so comfortable attacking members of the press and just kind of whoever the villain of the day is in the CNS world online, especially as communications team. They're a very, very online bunch. So there's not a whole lot they don't see. And yet, it's been pretty much radio silence for them on the Trump indictment front. So it's clear that the strategy is just to steer clear of it and let Trump do as much damage to himself as he can with it. But I also think that this is one of the things a lot of Republican operatives have been signaling concerns to me about for a couple months now. And I think it came up in our story about DeSantis' early debut on the trail and the pudding stuff, which is essentially that has he just been too untested in Tallahassee, whether that's on the media strategy, which again, his team does have a kind of logic there wanting to freeze them out. When he does press conferences locally, he tends to call it less than an hour before in Tallahassee. So you're a reporter in Tampa or Miami. There's no shot. You're making it there in time. And it's been referred to me, I help people as the Tallahassee bubble is what they're worried about with DeSantis. That yes, Florida is a very, very important state politically. It has a bunch of big media markets, but it's not the same and nothing is the same as running for president at the national level. So I almost wonder if we won't really see, other than in these kind of weird proxy fights among their supporters, if we won't see a true Trump DeSantis brouhaha go down until we're on debate stage or something like that. Because there's just so much time left to go where I just think that the CST has so much more to lose by getting into an all-out war with Trump on all those issues. And yeah, there's a whole traditional Republican primary electorate left out there who I think they're are open anyone but Trump this time around, while also knowing that he's brought so many people into the party and reshaped the party so much that if you piss off that base, your days are numbered. Well, Jake, one last very important question before you go. Trump has suggested two possible nicknames for Ron DeSantis. He's got Ron DeSanctimonious and Meatball Ron. And I was wondering if you think one of those might be a bit more powerful than the other. So you're just taking my reporter cap off and <laughs> judging by what seems to really stick. It seems that like the Meatball Ron one sticks. But every time I've seen Trump refer to him in the, the Meatball context, which just sounds crazy to say. <laughs> like, it's always a standalone meatball with a quote around it and not meatball Ron as a combo. So I don't know where he's going for there or if he just has different creative instincts about where to go with the nickname, but he's already started to kind of bail on the sanctimonious. I mean, I actually think that I had a person who's been a Trump confidant for decades tell me that they thought the sanctimonious was a great one because even if people have to look it up, that's kind of a good thing. And they will always associate being sanctimonious with Ron DeSantis in this person's words. But then he started shortening it to DeSantis, which like, how do you know what that's supposed to mean? So the future might be in the more visceral images of Meatball Ron and stuff down there. I mean, every Trump opponent has gotten a nickname before. So it's almost like I think the, we're getting a month two of Trump going back and forth over his Ron DeSantis nicknames. It seems like Meatball Ron is just the simple, obvious one there for the taking. Well, Jake, you're definitely giving Trump a lot of food anecdotes to work with. <laughs> well, we go where the reporting leads us. <laughs> Jake, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks again. Pleasure to be on. All right, and now for Fresh Hell, where we have sort of a matryoshka doll of Fox News and Dominion lawsuits. So Dominion, as folks probably remember, is suing Fox for $1.6 billion over false allegations Fox made about Dominion throwing the election for Joe Biden. We're now seeing not only our like first, I don't know, kind of counter lawsuit, but a counter counter lawsuit. On Monday afternoon, it came out that Fox was suing a former producer and what it turned out to be was that they are suing to stop this producer from filing her own lawsuit. She filed that anyway on Monday afternoon. And this lawsuit is, it's pretty eye-popping. 
This producer, Abby Grossman, says that basically Fox tried to coerce her into giving misleading testimony in the Dominion lawsuit. She describes a culture of sexism at Fox, which not surprising, actually. But she says that Fox is trying to position her and host Maria Bartiromo into taking the fall for spreading these election fraud hoaxes. So this is a mess, right? There's now, I think, three sort of contingent lawsuits. But I want to get into the meat of this Grossberg lawsuit because it really it's eye popping even if you know about the culture of sexism at Fox. Abby Grossberg says that while she was working at Fox, her superiors were regularly really gross to not only her, but Maria Bartiromo, who's a host. They said that she said that they called Bartiromo, quote, a crazy bitch. They said she's menopausal. That seems really kind of on the Fox brand, focusing on like where a woman is in her menstrual cycle. But there's some other really gross highlights here. She says that Tucker Carlson's top producer asked her whether Bartiromo would be open to having an affair with Kevin McCarthy. She says on her first day working as a booker for Tucker Carlson, she found that the show's Manhattan headquarters were decorated with large pictures of Nancy Pelosi in a swimsuit. She says that his staff joked regularly about Jews and used a vulgar term for women, not sure which. So listen, we've heard a lot over the past decade or so of a culture of sexism at Fox. There's been so many lawsuits, people fired, people accused of sexual assault. But I think this is another drop in the bucket, and it comes at a really legally vulnerable time when Fox is fighting off what is a just absolutely momentous lawsuit. Yeah, and I think that they are already in the thick of it. Their text messages are on display. Some of their top posts have been shown to be disagreeing with the president publicly or saying that they're tired of him. And it's creating this complex environment at Fox. But then, of course, you have everyday staffers, the folks who aren't the Tucker Carlson's of the world, who aren't the Brett Bears, who are just there trying to do a job. They're often younger. They're often not as politically outright as perhaps some of the hosts are and wanting to feel so, so aligned with Trump. And I think that this woman coming forward, she's describing a culture that is so notorious at Fox of sexism and of uncomfortable and sometimes very inappropriate place for women to work. But underneath that, of course, there is the news that relates to the broader Dominion situation and that she was saying she was coerced to give a specific testimony. And that can be very damning to Fox if they continue to try and say that they were fair in the situation and to ward up Dominion's lawsuit, which, of course, seems like Dominion is continuing to make quite a bit of progress on. Absolutely. I mean, the discovery alone in this lawsuit, which is all that's come out, has been, I think, just has been a bit of a wrecking ball. There's some polling, and I'm not sure exactly how how accurate it is, but that this lawsuit has actually moved the needle for some Fox watchers. They're not necessarily watching Fox less, but they are a little bit more skeptical of Fox as a news source. Now, what Grossberg is alleging here is that Fox's lawyers coached and intimidated her while she was making a deposition on Fox's behalf in this lawsuit, basically making herself look worse so that she's there to take the fall if and when Dominion does score a win on this. And she attributes a lot of that intimidation to a culture of sexism. But while I can believe that, I do want to push back a little bit because, yes, there can be a culture of sexism. And there's also a degree to which, as a journalist, you can't be airing, say, Sidney Powell talking about Venezuela has an algorithm that's going to override the voting machines. And I want to read a little bit from this Times coverage of the story, because I think it 
does speak to a institutional failing, a failing on multiple levels at Fox right now. She says that the network's disregard for women, it left her and Maria Bartiromo stretched too thin to properly vet the truthfulness of media claims against Dominion on the air. At times, Ms. Grossberg said she was the only full-time employee dedicated to solely working on Ms. Bartiromo's Sunday morning show. Now, okay, I get it. Listen, what reporter hasn't felt like they're under the gun, they're on deadline, they've got a lot to do in a little bit of time. That said, Fox is one of the only large outlets to run with these allegations, right? I don't think it needs the entire Fox News brain trust room to say that somebody sending an email about that they're getting rumors from the wind that Dominion is hacking the voting machines. I don't think you need seven or eight people to debunk that rumor. Yeah. And I mean, it's such a question about just how Fox operates in general. I think one of the things that came forward during Discovery is just that they don't have editorial standards like a lot of newsrooms have, that they don't have sort of a written process for how things are vetted. And it is a question of how this process happened at all within producer world like this woman was in or within who was being booked top down and how they were deciding how to cover this. Because if you're working at, for example, the Daily Beast here, we vet our sources. We make sure they're credible to talk about what they're talking about. And you don't just put one thing on paper that was a rumor that somebody heard from here or there and say, oh, and I'm going to report this out now. You have to substantiate things, which is at the root of what Fox wasn't doing when they were putting people like Cindy Powell on air to just spew out rumors and ideas of how they think this election was stolen and how they could win it back. Yeah, absolutely. And to some degree, yeah, this sounds like an institutional failing. It also does sound like she's being set up to be the fall woman. So I'm really interested to see what shakes out of this case. How many add-on lawsuits we can get here? We're up to three. And I think if we really push, we can maybe hit a half dozen. Yeah, I think we just got to keep going. <laughs> On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.